You know this heating element thing we have, the radiator? It feels real nice on your back back here. Oh, yeah, because your back's out. My back's out right now. <laughs> it actually feels really good. But I was told by the doctor, the chiropractor today, that I can't be using any heat on my no, back. No, no. What did I tell you? Yeah, he said no heat. He was saying ice, ice 20, 20 minutes of ice, hour off. So I was doing that all afternoon. Yeah, in case you guys, well, we, we, we just, you just happen to catch us in our conversation what? about Ugh. my back. Uh, yeah, over the weekend, I was really considering maybe moving the show to be, but I'm glad we, I feel pretty good now. I'm glad we stuck to it. Uh, 25 miles of hiking, basically, I did this weekend, which I do on a pretty regular basis uh, on the weekends when I have time, especially nowadays. I don't have as much to do. I've been doing a lot of long-distance hiking, which I did this weekend, and something got the best of me, I guess. And then you just bent over and yeah, I, well, downhill because yeah. that's how it happens. Well, it was great. Cause like, it's just uh, bend over. Yeah, I got up, I got up early yesterday. <laughs> And I went out to a new park that I haven't been to. And I think this is what may have really pushed me over the edge. As a, this new trail I went to had just these, I mean, I'm talking, Amber, these were like mountains I had to climb. You wouldn't have believed, you would have freaked out if you saw it. And so I'm taking all these hills for three, four hours. And I could feel the, I could feel my knees a little bit sore, but that's normal. I'm getting older. And that's, yeah, I got home. I'm thinking, okay, cool. I'm going to come home here. And I, and I got, that's what I did. I don't know if you saw in, in the, in the, in the, in the parlor, in Apollo room we have here. In Apollo. Apollo. Uh, I brought out the, the NESs now. I, I yeah. pulled those out of storage. So I got the Nintendos out to play, which I was playing the crap out of yesterday. Well, in my pain, because I was moving everything up there and I was getting all the games out and stuff. And yeah, that's all it was. Yeah, you bent over. I bent over in my entire lower back basically said fuck it i'm done yeah. i'm going on strike yeah and i i literally you weren't here i can't prove this to anybody but i was screaming my head off i don't i don't need proof of that because i know how you are when i, I came back my you head were, off it hurt you, scott lambert is the type of guy that will oh shut up i know what you're gonna say here and that's a bunch <laughs> of shit he exaggerates his pain I don't greatly exaggerate anything oh i'm sorry I, last know, night you were walking around going oh I couldn't walk. Oh. I couldn't walk. And how many times have I had my back out? Do I walk around screaming? I could. I, first mm -hmm. off, I wasn't screaming. You were screaming. I was not you were screaming. screaming. I was moaning. Oh, there's a difference. It hurt like hell. I could barely. <laughs> when I finally got in bed last night, everything, I couldn't even twist my body to roll over. I couldn't even roll the fuck over, for God's sake. I couldn't roll my body over. It hurt so bad. And then the couple times I tried to get up, my entire lower body just wouldn't, it felt like I was just going to collapse on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I'm sorry if I moaned a little bit about that. So now you know how it feels. I know you have children, you make babies. So you have a higher pain threshold. Fine. I'll give you that. <laughs> I'll be a big old pussy. I don't care. It hurt like hell. Thankfully today though, I, I ended up staying home and working in the house today. And yeah, I feeling a little bit better. I went to a chiropractor today for the, for the first, first time. time, first time ever. Super efficient, super cool, um, but scared to living. And he, he said the same thing. He's like, oh, you're a screamer, I see. I'll have to put you see? in the back room. Is even the chiropractor noticed. I'll have to put you in the back room when you come here. I don't want to scare my other patients to death. But he literally just like put me in a, on a table and just jumped on my back. And I heard I the pop. call it butt punching. Well, he didn't punch my butt. It was my lower back. Yeah. Well, but I felt they, the pop. He's like, did yeah. you hear the pop? I'm like, I felt the pop, man. Holy crap. But it did uh, help a bit. So, yeah, I've never... 
I've never experienced this. This is something brand new for me. Well, you're alive, but what yeah, isn't well, alive is our is conversation our topic. tonight. Yeah, because we're yeah. talking about postmortem photography and death and more death and death and Kelly Christian. Yes. was nice enough to join us tonight. Yes. And wow. I, I, I found her what because a nice, what a cool, what a cool I, chick. Man. I happen Super to be nice. looking up the order of the good death. Yeah. Um, and I happen to see a whole list of people that were part of it. And then her, she jumped out at me because of the postmortem photography. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, let's see if she can come on the show. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in, in brief, Kelly's super smart. She's a writer. Uh, she's a thinker based in Chicago. She's got a billion degrees. She's, she's, she's got it all. And she came on to talk about some awesome stuff with us tonight. It's quite an exquisite bio you pulled. She's well, really setting her up good. I, I go. You know what? I'm looking at her bio and yeah. I'm like, well, there's a lot here. And we talked to her. So I think people will get yeah. the gist. Our extensive prep work. She's, here, a, obviously. she's a writer. She went to she school. She went to school. She's educated. She knows some stuff. And she talked to us about this stuff. No, we got to a really, we had a really <laughs> interesting conversation about the idea of death and, you know, and how it does tie into life. I think people are just okay. so scared. Okay, of it. I'll I'll read the end of her her bio on her website. When not yeah, totally no, when not totally delighted by the macabre, Kelly is making bad jokes, hanging out with cats, indulging in tacos, or trying to go to every obscure museum out there. Woo! Enjoy, Kelly Christian. that knows me knows i like creepy weird death deathy stuff <laughs> and when we were talking about what guests to have on the show i was like uh we you know we gotta find someone who knows a little bit about post-mortem photography because recently we just purchased scott and i just purchased a photo well it was for my keep going it was for christmas right that was yeah, my christmas yeah. present uh we purchased a photo that when scott found this in the antique store uh, his first thought was to take a picture, send it to me, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a, this is the most glorious postmortem photo of a kid I've ever seen. Yeah, and I was a total idiot that day because well, yeah. I, knew, I knew for a he, fact yeah. you were going to want it. Yeah, and he didn't buy it. And, and it was like, you know, at Ann Arbor from where we live here, yeah. it's about a good, yeah, it's an hour. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I should get this because I'm not going to be able to get out here again. And so I took a picture. Why did I do that? Uh, to send it to me. To send to you. And to you're like, why the me? hell didn't you get it? What's wrong with so you? So anyway, he goes back and he, and he gets this photo. Yeah, now, I drive back again. But what was interesting, when you went to the antique place and you saw that, and you it, well, when you called and you mentioned to the lady right away, I'm interested in the basically the, the photo of the dead kid. And she kind of got defensive right away. Well, we, we don't know if that's a dead. We, we don't know. We were told yeah. that, that, that she might not be dead. Uh, a photography expert came in. Yeah. Um, okay, whatever, dead or alive, we want the photo. It's it's weird. And now I yeah, have... I want to give you money, so let's, yeah. I can call whatever the hell I want yeah. then. And I, and I have multiple people now <laughs> debating whether this kid is alive or dead. Yeah, in our living room. Yeah, because it, it doesn't have <laughs> the same look of some of these photos 
uh, that I we will be talking about tonight in postmortem photography. Um, sometimes some of these people they yeah. truly look dead, and yeah. this kid. Yeah. This, I'll have to send you this, Kelly. Um, yeah, I'm very intrigued. Yes. You've, really, you've piqued my interest. I should have sent it beforehand. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, so tonight on tonight's show, we have with us Kelly Christian, who is totally into postmortem photography. She's part of the Order of the Good Death, which we'll be talking about. Mm -hmm. She's totally into 19th century U.S. death culture, which is also like right up my alley. Yeah. And uh, so we're geeked to talk to her. So thanks for coming on the show, Kelly. Oh, I am super excited to be talking to y'all. Uh, it's an exciting thing to talk about, and sometimes it really bums people out. So it's really <laughs> nice to find some folks who are down to get into these subjects that, you know, I think a lot of folks are often surprised are a thing that a lot of people are maybe sort of into or that, you know, even antique stores make a lot of money off of or even that eBay is, you know, a huge kind of marketplace and Etsy too, for that matter, for postmortem photography and yeah. Um, it's really not that it's not that wild uh, once you kind of see where it, it is, which is literally everywhere at this point. Well, I want I'm curious and we've had conversations all over the place with people on this idea. And I I want to know, I guess, coming out of the gate here, I want to know when in history, I guess, would it be that this idea of postmortem photography became such a taboo idea? Because even now. If you were at a, a funeral and, and you broke out your your camera phone or your, your cell phone and took a picture of, of someone's, you know, you might, you might get punched. You get punched by somebody. It's a very taboo thing. I, I'm curious as to why it's so what changed the game, I guess. Is that so, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think that it started around the 1930s. Um, and a lot of that has to do, I think, with death moving out of the home. And so once you have funeral, you know, funeral homes involved. You have folks preparing bodies outside of the domestic space. You have people dying in hospitals and being prepared by funeral directors and embalmers. People just got a lot less hands-on about death. And I think that also includes looking at photographs, dealing with images. Um, by that point, the Victorian period had totally ended. And so there was this kind of less romanticized version of death. And then you also have the the scientific successes of the early 20th century in American medicine. So yeah. you have all these different things that have kind of come forward where folks are like, you know what, death is kind of gross and it's hard to deal with. So if we just kind of pay someone else to deal with it, we don't do it ourselves. And I think yeah. the more it got away from everyone dealing with it in their lives with their family members, mm -hmm. people definitely didn't want to see dead bodies. They didn't want to see them in photographs. They didn't want to see them in their living room. And I think they... It was a lot easier, I think, to kind of push it out of the psyche of the American mind altogether. You know, what's funny about that, too, is this is my great grandfather and he passed away. That would have been, I think it was 1980 when he passed away. So I was only five years old. And you were saying that this idea that death is moving out of the home, which makes perfect sense. However, it's maybe it's a cultural thing, too, because this is in the South. It's in Tennessee, right? Right. And that funeral, I'll, I remember it clear as day, they had his casket in his living room. I'm not saying what you're saying isn't true, uh, but I think maybe it, it, was, it was different in certain parts of the country. Who knows? I mean, uh, that was that happened. That was like, like I said, 1980, which was only that's pushing. What well, and I think being a rural, more rural part of the country yeah. plays a part, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're, this isn't a big city. This is yeah, backwoods Sparta, Tennessee. Tennessee yeah, <laughs> so, right. totally. But I think that the the 
the cool thing about postmortem photography and even about funerary practices in general is that it's just because, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the country is doing one thing. It doesn't mean there aren't those pockets of people doing their own thing that feels right for them. And so I've always been a huge advocate of making sure that we have the room to both talk about and practice death and mourning in the ways that feel the most authentic to us. And in like southern rural culture, you're going to have folks doing whatever it is that makes the most sense for them. There's also less access to maybe, you know, chain funeral homes, which is totally a thing in the 80s through now. Um, So that, you know, if you consider what's around you and then, you know, if if your family was really jazzed about doing something unique and specific, it's really hard to accommodate those requests in regular corporate funeral homes. So yeah, it's rad to hear that because, you know, I guess the thing that I always want to say too about postmortem photography is that it's never gone away. Um, It still happens. It happens all the time, but I think it's just because of what you said earlier, like people get freaked out about it. So there's a lot less room to discuss it or even to consider practicing it. Um, but I think it still does happen. There was an interview with a uh, funeral director in like the 1940s, and he was saying that the photographers don't come in anymore to photograph the corpse or to photograph the funeral itself. But there's always, you know, like instant camera trash in the trash cans in the viewing rooms, or that there's oh. film canisters. So like it still happens, but you know, people aren't displaying them in the same way, or maybe they're tucking them away afterwards. And now that we have digital phones and you know, everything else, there's no need to print them. You can snap it and then decide like, oh, you know what? I shouldn't have photographed like, you know, my dead grandparent, man, this is weird to have next to like the picture of my dog. Like I guess (laughs) I'll delete it. Um, So it's also, I think it's harder to track now for those reasons as well. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the postmortem photos is like, I don't have a lot of them because they can be kind of pricey. I got a photo, I got a photo of a dead baby, which (laughs) that one, those ones tend to be cheaper because... I I don't know. They're I think they're more abundant. Sad, sadly, um, and I did have. We do have a friend that he he actually told me I'm bothered by the postmortem baby photos only after he became a father, and then seeing dead children started to to act different. You know, it, it made him feel different when he saw those photos because his wife is actually one of those oddities collectors, so she has all kinds of wild stuff. And yeah. uh, yeah. And then I know I, a lot of folks that feel that way too, like folks that were, you know, in doing some of the similar work that I was, but once they had kids, they were like, you know what? Like I need a little bit of distance from at least the yeah. children photos, the which kids. Like, I understand. Um, I did happen. I love found photography. I love buying just boxes of old photos and then going through them and just wondering about these people's lives. And I happened to get one that was an old uh, picture of a guy with his dead dog. Yeah, And um, I thought that was pretty cool because I'm pretty sure the person that sold that lot had no idea that that was a postmortem photo, but it was with a pet. And I mean, people did that, too. Um, but what I what I tell people when they're like, well, why, you know, those pictures, why did people do that? That's so gross. And oh, my God. And uh, I, a lot of times these people were not this was the only photo you had of this person with photography being somewhat new in the 18th or 19th century, you sometimes didn't have a photo and then they're on their way out, they're checking out and you're like, shit, we got to take a photo. Like, I mean, this was your option. Yeah. And I think too, like the kind of stark reality is that if you a couldn't afford it, like this was the one time you could do it and it was expensive. And you know, you have to imagine too, a lot of Americans at that point lived in the country. It wasn't an urban society. And so getting someone with a with a skill set that enabled them to practice photography, you had to go find someone to either A, come to your home after the person died to photograph them in your home or bring your deceased family member to this stranger studio in town. And so people really wanted it to happen and they had to jump through hoops for that to work. 
like they sought it out and they made it happen, which is really saying something, especially when you're, you know, going through something as intense and upsetting as losing a family member. Like it wasn't something I think folks took lightly. And I also don't think it was that weird. And at the end of the day too, like for the photographers who were doing this, you had this practice and this skill set. photographing the dead was ideal. Cause imagine you had like a, you know, three to 10 second, um, exposure exposure yeah. and this person's not going to move um, <laughs> like, it's a little funny but it's also totally true like it's true yeah like there's no better way you can like drag the couch up next to the window get some good natural light going kind of pose the body like you know this person was basically kind of curating the body of this person who had just died so that they could have a photograph that meant something to the family like that's a pretty wild job now were kelly in your research did you find out if uh, there were Photograph photographers that specifically did postmortem photos, or was that just kind of a job of the everyday photographer? Like you might get a call from a family one day, "Hey, can you come take a picture of uh, Grandma? She died." I think that if you were practicing uh, photography as a professional job, it was just part of the job. Okay. Um, so in my research, I I spent a lot of time going through the Philadelphia Photographer, which is a trade magazine from the 1860s through the 1890s. And people would write in. It was a monthly publication, and people would be like, you know, here's the best film to use for this, you know, landscape portraiture, or have you heard about this new exciting innovation from Kodak, or here's the best way to photograph a dead person, because it was all the same. Right. Um, and so a lot of those publications had folks writing in saying, like, here's how you keep the eyes open, or here's how to talk to somebody about positioning the corpse the right way. And so I think it was simply just treated as part of the job when they, when they signed up for it. I, I had read something, I think when I was going through your website, there was, I seem to remember something about using a teaspoon to open the eyes. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh. Do you, what were the details? Do you remember the details about that, what they were told to do? So, hold on, let me pull it up. I was just going through <laughs> some of my old archival stuff because I wanted to make sure that I had uh, all the details for stuff like this. Yeah, that was one of those things that, like, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, like, just the little weird things you had to do to... I don't know, make the person look somewhat alive or uh, I don't know. I mean, I know there was like you could kind of um, it wasn't Photoshop, but you could sort of touch up a photo after you took it, uh, you know, and make give a give a little life to their cheeks or something like that. But otherwise, you know, you can't really draw eyes on them. Some people did that, actually, like you they would put them on the eyelids. Oh, <laughs> so, I mean, that wasn't like a. I feel like that's like kind of a an urban myth. There's only a few photographs that I've seen of that, but like. They're totally real. Oh, wow. Um, that was a thing that happened. So, hold on. I'm just going through the archival stuff that I, I've got on my end. Um, I can imagine, too, that sometimes, like, you know, you're trying to pose the body, and it's stiff. It's weird. Oh, it it's, stiff, there could yeah. be this, you know, it's, I mean, bodies, they're going to start to stink. Like, yeah. you're sitting there trying to take your photo. and Yeah, you're trying to have this dignified, stoic photo. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> just. And not to take like, it, not to take this lightly, but those are real issues. Yeah, they are. Well, that's the thing. You had like a really limited time, and imagine too, like I think of your family in Tennessee. Like, how hot was it? Like, was oh. that was your was your family member embalmed? Like, and if not, you're really working against time before things yeah. start like leaking and pooling and oozing. Like, that's just what bodies do after you die. Um, yeah. And like, if you think about it too, there wasn't ice. There wasn't freezers. Like. To get ice, you would have to go someplace to procure the ice, which isn't always available. And so if it's August and it's Georgia, you're going to have like a situation on your hands that's not cute. 
Um, and well, yeah, so and you have to transport the ice too. You have to get the ice there or, I, yeah. mean, I, I mean. You would have to transport the ice either to your house or yeah. bring your deceased relative there. you know, through yeah. the hot Georgia sun to the town center where oh. maybe there was ice available for purchase or maybe not. Like there's a lot of unknowns. So you're really kind of up against time. Like you've got 24 hours before rigor mortis is really going to be tough at that point, but you've got a couple hours if it's hot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I did find the part about the eyes. Um, so this is from 1875, and some delightful professional person wrote this into the Philadelphia photographer, so I'll read from that right okay, now. Okay. Um, in taking a corpse, I turned everybody out of the room, excepting for some person well acquainted with the deceased. I then set to work on the eyes, opening and working the lid of one eye till it is pronounced natural by the acquaintance. When I quickly pour on the eyeball a little plain collodion, which effectively holds the eye and lids in the desired position. It is then easy to make the other eye match the first operated upon when you may move the body where you please without any exchange in the expression of the eye. A mm. wet sponge will remove the collodion. Oh. <laughs> and so that's just making use of the stuff that you had too. Like as a photographer, if you're doing wet plate photography, yep. the collodion is what you're going to use to spread on the material so that it, it would kind of host the photographic materials in that sticky substance mm -hmm. and so you could also kind of like whip it out and stick some on the eye to either close or open it depending on what you wanted that person to look like in the photo you know, it's amazing and this is just me on the outside we said this before we started recording yeah this is kind of amber's gig this is the amber show <laughs> amber show uh but i'm finding this amazing though because i'm th it's got my mind cranking through all these ideas because Amber has shown me plenty of these photos. Look at this dead guy. Yeah, Look at this we'll one. We'll be it. <laughs> but she, I mean, a lot of times you don't say that. You're like, hey, check this out. No, I'm, I'm just genuinely interested. You're like, hey, check this out. And I'm like, well, okay, it's a couple people. And then, I, then it gets dropped on me like, well, no, this person's dead. One of these people are dead. Which one? Have you done that before? Like, one of these people are dead. Which one is it? And I yeah. honestly can't tell. So that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a credit to the people who did this because they really, they didn't look dead to me. Yeah. And can you also imagine being like, I am somebody who's learning how to do photography, this new and exciting technology, like <laughs> this new thing that is changing the world in front of you. And it yeah. takes all the skill and investment, but you're also touching randos, dead relatives. Like yeah. it's intense. It's really strange. Well, then on top of the whole, uh, you have, you have the whole postmortem photography, um, are you familiar with all of the wild stuff the Victorians did as a, like as the continuing mourning, um, like, you know, wearing black for two years and all the kind of just things you were supposed to do in Victorian society after someone died? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think a lot of that, too, is based in class. Right. And so and especially for women of a certain class, there were expectations about widow's weeds, about. You know, even Tiffany's had stationery and different thicknesses of the border, the black border on the stationery would denote how far you were along in your morning. Yeah, yeah. And so oh, it's, it's wild. also like, how do you sell death? Like, how do we capitalize on mourning? Like, everyone goes through this thing, like, who can make money off of it? And so, you know, in a very, like, Jessica Milford kind of way, I think there is some caution to be said about, like, you know, who's really benefiting from death? Like, how did this start in the 18, you know, against all of time, really, but it really stepped up after the Civil War. And even now, I mean, I think those conversations are still being had. It's still relevant. But I do think that the Victorian practices of mourning, while they were prescriptive, also at least gave people a heads up of like, hey, I'm going through a thing. Like, right. grief is real. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that we should all put on like black dresses when people die. <laughs> but 
I think that making room to talk about grief and being open about it is something that our culture, at least in 2019, is totally missing. Well, they are. And I think you have to give a person these what these customs we're talking about. I mean, I know a lot of people, I think the society we're in now, we have, it's a very strange society we're in because we have this very narcissistic side, the extreme but you also have at the same time, a lot of people play like they don't want to be bothered or be acknowledged for anything. Right. Right. Uh, so you have, I think people play that, you know, mentally on both sides. And I think that is a good thing that, you know, if people know, I mean, every day, if there's anything that social media has done, uh, I think to us as a society is damn, I know every day who died. I, I know I get that notice every day, whether they're a famous person, whether it's my buddy's aunt, whether it's my buddy's grandmother, I am getting a notice that, you know, I, every day I know someone's passed away. So every day it seems like there's a funeral now. Uh, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? I don't really know. I'm not going to judge that, but, um, it does. I think that it does kind of what I would say, put an earmark on you. So people can say, they can say their condolences. They can help you through this if you want to talk to somebody. They won't give you a hard time about that $10 you owe them for a little while. They'll give you some breathing room, right? I think those things, that may help people out a little bit. I mean, and what you're saying, though, is that we, and I agree, we don't have that in 2019. I think it's something, this process we're talking about is just something that really is cold and clinical now. And even, you know, the last couple of years, I've lost a few loves, loved ones. And I've had people literally tell me like, okay, well, here's the stages you're going to go through. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's it, such a weird thing to hear. I mean, yeah. so I'm, you know, my, my dad died in May mm-hmm. and it was the same thing. It was like, everyone was kind of, kind of weird about it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you should know of all things, like of all people, how to, how to mourn because you specialize in. Uh-huh. all of these things about grief. And it's like, well, the other thing that I, I can say is that like grief is messy and it's different for everyone and it's different all the time for yeah. someone going through it anyways. So like, yeah. you know, it kind of just like, it ups the empathy, I hope, but it also, I think the thing about grief is it's sloppy and it comes whenever it wants to and you mm. just have to kind of go with it. And in some ways, I think social media making space for that is helpful, but I do wonder like, you know, if we're spending a lot of time exploring those things on social media are we exploring those things in person exactly um, yeah so it, it brings up some questions for me i think that those conversations happening online is a great first place to start but i hope that more comes from it yes so kelly how did you get interested in this whole subject i mean you're you're am i right that i read that your thesis was on post-mortem photography yeah it okay. was uh it's a pretty long thesis <laughs> and it's <laughs> only about postmortem photography. So I really went hard on that. Um, when I, so I guess what, what started everything was my boyfriend died at the end of high school. Um, suddenly he was riding his bike and he got hit and it was a pretty big surprise. I hadn't gone through a loss like that at that point. And I went and I was like, Oh, I should have brought my camera. I really wish I had taken a photo of him before he was buried. And then I was like, Oh, that's kind of weird, I guess. And then I stuffed that deep down inside of myself until, you know, later years. Um, but I always kind of wish that I had done it. And then, um, and so that was 2004. And then in 2007, I was in a documentary photo- photography program in Portland, Maine. And um, this was right during the height of the Iraq war. And the documentary project that we decided to take on was the military funerals in Maine. Um, and there were, I think there were five folks that died in spring of 2007. 
and Maine is not that big. Um, so the folks that died were, their community was everywhere. Um, they had very public funerals. And so we went and we, we photographed it. And at that time, um, the Westboro Baptist Church was coming to protest. And, oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so for, for folks who are listening who might not know, um, they are this like wild, extreme group. Um, I don't quite know how to describe them. They're, a, bun- they're a bunch of assholes. They're, just... the, they're the worst. Yeah, <laughs> they're the they worst. They're terrible. Fags, like they, they blame everything on um, issues with sexuality. It's, it's bonkers. But that yeah. aside, so, you know, the protesters were supposed to be coming up to Maine. And so this group uh, mostly made up of Vietnam veterans came out and they would rev their Harley engines when they would be chanting at these funerals, these protesters who were protesting the funerals for things that aren't real. Um, so there was this big divide going on of angry Westboro Baptist folks and these Vietnam vets um, who are making this line to protect the families. And so we were photographing it, but um, I was really moved by the experience of being at these military funerals and um, yeah. and watching how people dealt with it because uh, I was huge, I'm hugely anti-war like as a person. I especially was in 2007. That part of me has continued, but um, there wasn't anyone talking about loss in that way, in the public way of, well, what happens when these young men go to Iraq and die and come back? Like, what does that mean for their families? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was 20 when I was doing that, and I was meeting widows who were just a couple of years older than me. Yeah. And um, it was a pretty intense experience, but um, I talked to each person that I photographed, and they were like, you know, we're just glad that someone's here just talking about this and making photos because there's there's no way for us to show our stories and to talk about the grief that we're going through in this this way because you know war is complicated and it's not the same as something like vietnam it's a much different approach there's yeah, a much different we're, we're a different we're a different race of people now we're different people it isn't like Absolutely, it was 40, yeah. years, 40 years ago and it's such a funny idea with it's not funny at all but it's it's an interesting idea uh with this idea of war and and casualties of war, whether they were casualties in the field or whether they were casualties when they came home, uh, or they, they just they just passed away. They they were one of the lucky ones that survived through, and they lived to maybe be an old age and pass away naturally. It, it's that it, as far as death customs and the respect you see from that. Uh, I've been to plenty of military funerals or you know been to, been been to these ceremonies. And it's I can't say one time where I didn't feel a lump in the back of my throat hearing, you know, the respect these people were given. It's it's a very weird thing because I I feel the same way about war that you do. Uh, However, and it's funny, some of the circles I see, especially where we're at now in this day and age, uh, a lot of the younger folks, they think that anything to do with the military, you know, it's just bad. And if they die there, who cares about that? It's like. No, man, I agree. I'm with you on this. I, I don't want to see people getting killed. I don't want I don't understand this whole idea of war either. But I do understand these people gave their lives. And I do want to acknowledge that and respect. Yeah, that. whether you agreed with the war or not, this yeah. person gave their life. Exactly. Right. And I think that was the thing that, you know, a lot of the folks that we were spending time with weren't on the same, like, you know, political spectrum that I was. But at the same time, I think when it came down to it, it was like, it's really upsetting and there's something really important to be said about folks who do, you know, give service through the military. Like I'm not down with war in any capacity. And, but at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that these folks stepped up to serve in this way and like them dying. 
Yeah, you know, and and is upsetting and it sucks. Yeah, and and in death is one thing, and life's another thing too. Not to not to go too far off the beaten path here, but it's something I try to do now. I was just at the hardware store not too long ago, and I was waiting in line, and this gentleman in front of me asked if he could get a you know if he could get a military discount and they said well yeah we can do that but we have to go through all this paperwork and all this stuff and he was as kind as he could be he was very nice very very polite where it was me i'd be like what the hell why are we why is this gonna be so hard here's my military id i mean i i, I know there's other things around that with the stolen valor thing and whatnot uh but it seemed a little ridiculous but they're like well we need to get this paperwork and whatnot he, he so as he's waiting there i just kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said sir thanks for your service man Thank you so much. I never served myself, and I appreciate you doing what you were doing. So these guys don't get, I mean, not only in death, but I think in life, too. I, I think these guys need to be be acknowledged and respected for that also. I mean, that's, and that's just how I feel about it. I know there's a lot of different viewpoints, uh, but, yeah, <laughs> it kind of bums me out, honestly. No, it totally does. And, yeah. I mean, I think, too, when you when you look at it in death, like, you know, someone who has done this very public thing for the gesture of, you know, yeah. America in general, like, and to have protesters show up to a funeral is like salt in the wound times a million. I, I just don't. That's beyond logic to me that the whole Westboro thing, not that I don't want to turn this into a stomp. On, well, it'd be fun to stomp <laughs> on their heads because they're a bunch of idiots. But uh, that just defies logic. That whole group defies logic to me. The stuff they do. I mean, it would defy logic if they were, if they were peaceful in their pro- protesting. But if they were peaceful you know, okay, fine. You have your opinion. It's a ridiculous opinion. Fine. You can, you have your right to protest, but yeah, what you're talking about, which I'm very familiar with. And the fact that you were right in the middle of that, that's kind that's what, that's kind of amazing to me. I could see where you, that would affect you. Yeah. And so we were, you know, the group was the Patriot guard riders and we were with these, these dudes on their motorcycles, just kind of seeing how all of this happened and like that they were legally allowed to protest. They gained the proper permits. Yeah. The Patriot Guard, too, was also just trying to be like, we see that you're doing this and that's fine. However, like we're trying to offer some sense of like sound protection, if nothing else, um, to just allow folks to kind of grieve through this public thing. So I think my role there to just document what was going on, I think, was it it really did change how I, you know, perceived both death and the military and everything else. But I think it also kind of changed the dialogue about how you come together over something like death, like a lot of the folks that we were talking to, again, older, older guys who, you know, reminded me of my dad who mm-hmm. <laughs> served in the military. Um, and he definitely were like, you know, I have tattoos and a nose ring. And they were kind of like, what's the deal here? <laughs> um, but we still were able to like share muffins and like, you know, talk about what it means to go through something like a military funeral together, even though we didn't agree on things. And I think that in my most idealistic point of view, I hope that having conversations about death is something that brings people together over the political divide. Yeah. And that, and that, I mean, if there's one thing we can't all agree on is that, I mean, as yeah. far as death, it's something that is the great peacemaker in my opinion. It's, it's true. I mean, I don't think that, you know, going through something like losing a family member or a loved one is, is going to erase everything and make everyone feel happy. But I think having the space and the, the skill to talk through something like that, allows you to build enough trust and the possibility of reconciliation in some capacity. Yeah, I, and that's one thing I was just going to say is I've seen that happen. I mean, deaths in your family, uh, deaths with friends, whatever they may be, it is, dare I say, an opportunity for people to get together. Uh, it I, is. I mean, it's happened with me, a lot of my old friends growing up, 
Uh, one of their, one of our parents passes away. It is our opportunity to get to get together, and there has been some 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 scraping and rubbing over the years, some some hard feelings with things, and it has been those opportunities that were given to us through that for us to get together and talk and kind of you know reconcile our differences and things like that. So there are all those positive things that come out of these rituals. We're saying you know getting to, you know that is a to me a ritual in and of itself or custom, you know that you do gather. And you celebrate someone's life and you maybe say, okay, well, this is obviously a lot heavier than the fact that you owe me 50 bucks and you haven't paid me my money or whatever. Let's bury the hatchet here, you know? Right. Uh, And I think too, that like, if you look at the way that these things bring us together now, like postmortem photographs kind of did the same thing for folks when those were happening. So there were some postmortem photographs too, that were printed directly onto postcards, which meant you could send them in the mail and say like, Hey, loved one who migrated West, like, you know, our kid died and I guess you couldn't come say hi, but here's some proof a that it happened and B like, here's an image of them because you definitely don't have one. Just put, sor- yeah. Sorry. We missed you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll never see us again. However, <laughs> here you go. Well, yeah. And I, and, and I know some people look back at these, these customs, I mean, such as like a, a dead kid on a postcard and they, they think, wow, that is so absurd. I can't even imagine doing that. One, one of the other customs that they did uh, was that was the hair jewelry. Oh, oh man, I love hair jewelry. I so. do. I think it is so cool, and it holds up so well. But there are so many people that are completely disgusted by the idea of hair jewelry. And and for those who don't know what it is, it's basically taking a lock of your dead loved one's hair and maybe making a bracelet, a brooch, uh, an artful wreath, or some type of picture photo, weaving it. Um, there's all kinds of stuff if you Google this. But I, I mean, some people are so grossed out by that. Yeah, I think people are pretty grossed out by almost everything our bodies do. Um, Mm. But like, you know, if you are trying to show a loved one a gesture of like how much you mean to them, like doing something that is directly correlated to their existence, like their hair is actually pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, And also, too, when you think about the jewelry, um, there is a whole bunch of different kinds of like braids and layouts that you could do. Um, And it was something that a was inexpensive and B you could do through mail order catalog. So you could get books and instructions. You could sit down with like your BFF on the weekend and like <laughs> knock out a brooch on a Saturday. And that's pretty cool. And you didn't yeah. have to save up for like wool or embroidery flood. Like you could really get creative with what you had, which was literally free hair. Um, but I think that people do get totally freaked out by it, which is a bummer because it's beautiful and it's totally interesting. Oh um, I, Yeah. I, I love it. Well, it goes um, back. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, I was just going to say I love it. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, well, it, it goes back to this idea that we started with is just, and I think you said this also a second ago, uh, the idea of death and the idea that, you know, yeah, our bodies are pretty gross. And that that includes life and living bodies too. But I mean, that it's just this idea that, especially in death, like, oh, this, this is a corpse, gross. And what, and I've, you know, I've, felt I've seen this impression I've seen this happen with people where you know this is a person they love when they were alive this, is a, this was one of their loved ones they cared about this person and they passed away they're like okay well what do we do now it's just it's a dead yeah like all of a now. sudden you don't want to touch that person or no, deal no, with them or... I, I think a lot of that has to do with people's beliefs yeah right but there is that you know yeah the, the hair the you're talking about with hair yeah uh, ashes I mean that's a very common one now too uh, ashes 
I mean, I've seen, oh, I'm sure you've oh, seen the Big Lebowski, oh, for example. No, but you, just, you maybe just think of something though. Yeah. People were starting to get okay. Okay, so they well, they no, I'm okay. I'm thinking of morning jewelry, but really it was just kind of like black jewelry, like the you know the stone jet or something. But yeah. people yeah. were are now getting ashes put into jewelry, like yeah. blown glass, and then sprinkling some of the ashes into a pendant or something that you're wearing yeah. on your neck. And and I and I thought, wow, when I when I heard that being done. I thought, wow, that's just like kind of back in the day, like the eighteen, you know, the nineteen. Well, there's people nineteenth the, century. They're putting them in some type of container or glass and, yeah. and making it into jewelry again. Yeah, I saw. You know, we saw the the glass figurines, the blown glass. You could do that also. I was thinking about doing that with Astrid's ashes. Was oh, I didn't little, know that was an was, option. It's an option. They have these big. And you may you've heard of this, I'm sure, Kelly. Is the the big glones like you know the globes and stuff like that? The glass. Oh, yeah. You can have ashes put in that. There's actually a company. I saw this. Um, that the whole vinyl craze is getting so big now with records again. There's yeah, actually you can have it put into the record. They can have it put. You can have a vinyl record of your favorite song done or whatever, and you can have your ashes put into the vinyl and have it pressed like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of things like that I think that are happening now. A lot of very creative ways. So you know maybe this idea. I guess there's two sides to it really because people say, well, gross, gross, gross. But then you have all these companies that are doing things like this. I guess. I, Okay, well, that brings right, me to right. the the idea of uh, one of one of Kelly's other things yeah, here is yeah. is death uh, positivity and the order of the the good death. So can you can you go and go yeah, nuts explaining this to us? Let's talk about this. Yeah, sure. So I basically I just I emailed Caitlin. I don't know. I guess it was like six years ago or so, and was like, I think what you guys are doing is awesome. I want in. Um, and so I talked to her, and um, we have the same birthday, which is really cool. But also, <laughs> we shared the idea that you know, having room to talk about and integrate death into life is actually super important. And there are different ways you can approach that, whether it's through art or, you know, academic scholarship, through the funeral trade itself, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of interrupt the idea that death is something that we should, you know, tuck away and kind of keep, keep tucked into our, our closets and like, you know, behind closed doors and only with family. Um, and so with the death positive movement, I think it's about making space to make sense of death in the ways that we all need to, um, depending on whatever your cultural background is or your religious belief set. Like, yeah. I think that the death positive movement is here just to say that this is like a flexible way for all of us to go through this thing we all have to deal with, which is grief and loss, and that we should have agency over our own beliefs and for what we want done with our bodies when we die, and that there are ways to have conversations about it that shouldn't be a burden. Um, and I think that is super important when it comes down to edu education, but also in kind of like building friendships and considering the kind of legal pathways that allow us to consider different ways of dealing with bodies. So whether that's body farms or if you want to get into water cremation or green burials, that there should be ways that these things can happen for everyone. So uh, with the body farm thing, is that do I understand this right, that that's where you kind of just throw throw a body out there and let it do its thing naturally? So when I imagine body farms, I think of um, usually universities or kind of big education institutions that do that as a way to better understand how yeah. DK happens. Um, oh, something yeah. like green burials would allow someone like you or me to say, like, wrap me up in a sheet and toss me in a hole to decompose back into the earth would be something, you know, kind of under the green burial uh, okay. umbrella. Yeah, the body farm thing is a, it's a re, it's more or less the research type thing. I've seen I've seen yeah. documentaries on this where you have. I mean, forensics and things like that, where they'll put bodies into an area and just see how they, yeah, like you said, how they decay and things like that. Right. But yeah. I think that, you know, donating your body to science is also a thing that I think has gotten kind of a bad rap, but 
that could mean a whole bunch of different things for folks that, you know, want to ensure that their bodies are used for, for research so that they can better, you know, yeah. understand what happens in whatever place that your body might end up, whether it's cancer research or whether it's body farms or whether it's literally anything that, yeah. that comes under that huge kind of understanding of science. So. Here in, here in Detroit at Wayne State University, we used to have a mortuary science program, which I ironically, when I was, when I was like, that was when I was still in college, when I was starting college, it was about 300 years ago now, uh, <laughs> they actually had this program and I was considering going into that. So I went to a, uh, an orientation, this is when I was still in high school, and they literally had cadavers lined up in the in the top floor in the labs that these guys were doing their work on and, and practicing and learning the learning the, the trade and the skill of of being a mortician and i did ask one of the guys because i mean i always whenever i tell people this story i say hey you remember when you dissected the frog in school and like for me at least like the first day you get a nice fresh frog out of the bucket it smells like formaldehyde well at least back then it didn't i don't think they can use formaldehyde anymore uh, but you get this fresh frog and you, you start doing the stuff, the labs, and then you get second day, okay, it looks all right. Uh, third day, which is like Wednesday, let's say, it's starting to look a little creepy. Thursday, yeah, it's starting to dry out. And by Friday, the thing is a piece of leather. It's freaky, right? Yeah. That's kind of what these 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 cadavers looked like. They were they were pretty, well, I don't know, they were pretty dried out. <laughs> I don't know any <laughs> nice way to say it. But I remember <laughs> asking one of the guys who was, you know, in a lab coat, I said, you know, where do you guys get? these cadavers from he's like oh they're donated medical science uh these people signed up and said that they would donate their 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 corpse when they passed away to our school so it's you know that's just one example too of people and that was that was like 300 years ago it seems like now when i was still in high school and they so that's one other way they do that is that you know like you said donating your body to science but there's a lot of different ways you can do it i think too Right. And also, like, the history of that is real murky. And so it used to be that, you know, grave robbers would go out and, like, you know, dig up folks and bring them back to hospitals to do all of that research. Yeah. But then you also had folks who were either poor or people of color, like, that were disenfranchised and they were buried and not taken care of and that they made their way into those places, too. And so it was this whole, like, dark trade of bodies that allowed us to understand medical stuff uh, that we have now. But you know, I'm I'm always happy to know that people are still donating their bodies to science because it it allows these deeper understandings to be done um, without having to do all like the sketchy shit that's gone on yeah. for the rest of humanity. So yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it seems to me like one of the most logical things you can do. It really is giving back to to your better person. I think. Uh, however, there. I mean, I guess you know a lot of people. I you know when it comes to your body, this this bag of water that we walk around with uh, there's a lot of ways you can do that you've, you've discussed about you know the body farm thing which is more of a research thing uh, obviously just giving your body back to the earth i don't i don't know any other way to say that uh, like you said and amber what, what was it was more what was the name for that kelly i forgot now uh, uh just you, green green burials green burials i've heard of burials where they mix you up with tree with uh with seeds um, yep. trees i guess and I've seen that done too. I've seen videos on that where you can be kind of planted like a tree in a tree, a tree will grow where you were planted at more or less. Well, in my luck, the tree would die. <laughs> I just die again. <laughs> Second death. Just double jeopardy. Yeah, that. it didn't take. Yeah. Your family's going to be so bummed out when that happens. Like, <laughs> I think there's a... lost her twice. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of beautiful ways. To me, that's one of the more, you know, beautiful things you can see. I mean, 
he could get to look at that tree every day and just know what it's about. And it's very poetic, I think. It's very beautiful. So, I mean, this idea of the good death and making it more of a positive type of thing, I think, yeah, I think maybe we should, as we've said already, this idea of death should be brought to the forefront more. Uh, it isn't, I don't think it's, I think people have this weird thing that you're fascinated with death. Like you have a fascination with death. You're you, you're fascinated with the morbid. It's like, no, I think it has more to do with life. Like you said too, like this idea of death being incorporated more into our lives, that it is a part of the human experience, the human condition, that death is a much a part of that as it is growing hair on your body and maturing and going through puberty and all these things. It's a part of the natural cycle of what you are as, as a human. I think so. And I think too, like, you know, I've been doing stuff in and around death now for, I don't know, 10 to 12 years. And I think people, whenever I meet folks, they're usually pretty freaked out, but then they really want to get into it and be like, let me tell you about this thing that happened in my life that really changed who I am. Or, you know, I've, I've gotten so many interesting stories from folks after people kind of get over the fact that like, this is that like death is my jam. Um, and so once folks kind of come around to it and are, are down to talk about it or, you know, like if you're having a drink at a party and everyone's talking about like celebrity news or like cats, both of which are exciting things in their own right, like that I'm going to be in the corner talking about corpses and like, that's usually a pretty big hit too. <laughs> um, so I will say, I think that most people come around to wanting to talk about it pretty quickly. Like there have been very few people who I've met either casually or through the work that I'm doing, like that are so put off, they can't get into it. I think it usually actually inspires someone to want to share something that maybe they don't otherwise share that much. Well, it's just, again, that's, it's that idea that people are scared to talk about stuff like this, I think. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm a very intense person as it is. And so I think too, like, I'm not very good at bullshitting. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I, I just blurt stuff out. I also have a mouth. I have like a lip tattoo that says RIP that, you know, <laughs> always kind of gets shown around at some point. Um, and it's, you know, my entire, I think, life's goal at this point is to integrate those conversations into parties and into schools and uh, into family things. Like, that's that's my take in life at this point. And I am I stand by it. Like, after losing my dad last year, which was a surprise, like, yeah, I think it, it was a chance for me to kind of put everything to the test and be like, well, is, is what I'm saying actually working? And I think it, like, I stand by it. Like, yeah. I, I totally agree with it still, even after that. So What it hits home like that, too. That's where you really, I know in my youth, when my uncle passed away, who was like, I think the closest, like the first time a very close relative passed away, uh, that first time you experienced the grieving process like that. And again, I'm not trying to make it clinical either, but it is something you do go through. It's a very real thing. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, uh, you learn a lot from that. It's never the same every time. It don't matter, you know, every everybody's different you have different relationships with people so whether they're friends or family uh, but it's something that I think it changes you like you leave that experience a different person every time it forms you and shapes you into the person you are until dare I say it's your turn <laughs> I think it's totally true though I yeah. mean I think that you know having lost someone and when I was as young as I was and then losing my dad kind of young I was like I think it has totally shifted the way that I make sense of this and the way that I talk about it, but it's, I think just kind of solidified how I move through my life now as mm -hmm. a, you know, an adult in the world. 
Um, but, you know, I'm always like asking people about their wills and, you know, making sure that folks, you know, have a plan for what they want and that, you yeah. know, having those conversations is equally important no matter how old you are, especially if you know that death also just happens whenever it wants, like random people die and you can't do anything about it. It's always going to happen. It's a constant. So being prepared as much as you can and at least being yeah. open to what that looks like is important. It's easy. It, you know, it's easy. It's it, the weird things like that, the sudden death things. I, I, I Amber, this the floor is going to be yours after this, but it made me think about <laughs> It made me th- well. You're 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 jumping up and I'm, down, screaming. No, I'm, I'm not. Kid- I'm, just, I'm kidding. Listen. <laughs> it made me think about uh, my grandfather passed away on my dad's side in 2000, and it was a sudden a sudden death. He didn't know it was going to happen. And one of the stories my dad told me, and now you don't know me, Kelly, but my family on my father's side are one of the trait characteristics is a Lambert. When they get into a project, they can't really stop until they finish the project. And I'm I've, familiar with people like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm, I, I feel the ugly side of that every day in my professional life and my personal life. Well, my grandfather, Lambert, would be working on projects in his tool shed out in the back of the property, his house, which was a pretty decent sized piece of property. And the story I got from my dad was. He was in there after my grandpa passed away, uh, cleaning out the shed, looking for things, and he pulled a jar off of the the uh, like one of the one of the shelves to see what was in it. And it was a jar that just looked like it had some yellow, uh, you know, amber colored liquid in it, and it splashed on him. And he realized, you know, I'm sorry to be gross, but this is really funny. At the end, he realized that this was my grandfather's urine. Not cool. <laughs> not because not because my grandpa was some creepy sick person that would you know keep his urine in jars. It's because, and we know for a fact because we had seen this happen before, he would be so into a project that he didn't want to break himself from that. So he'd just grab a jar and relieve himself and go back to his work. Right, and it was just one of those jars he forgot to dump out when he was done because he'd just go dump it in the in you know in the sewer or the toilet or something like that when he was done with his. But he had to get the work done. Right, but the yeah. point the point of that was that. He didn't know he was going to die. Right. You know, he's like, I'll get around to that soon. I'll dump that thing out. He just forgot to do it. And he would have eventually done it, but he passed away mowing his yard. Right. And that's just one of those little things. It it is, like I said before, the idea of death, it's, it's a part of the human condition and you have to prepare for it much like you prepare for anything in life, I guess. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but... Your taxes. You have to prepare taxes. for death. You there do you taxes. Go. Taxes. There you go. Death and taxes. Exactly. It's okay. it's something It's something you have to do. And I think a lot of people just think they're either going to live forever or they just don't think that far ahead, right? Yep. Uh, so it is something that I think is important that a lot of people, I think that they neglect that idea. Right, yeah, Amber? I think so. Yeah. So it's it's... Something you don't think about enough uh, enough about. I don't think. I don't think people want to think about. I think it. you get freaked out by it because I know my doctor. It's scary. My it's doctor's scary. like, you know, she always gives me forms every year. Like, you know, have you done your will? Have you filled out your blah 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 blah? And I'm like, <laughs> like thinking about your own mortality. It's like if I don't think about it, it's not going to happen. I'll be immortal if I don't think about it. And and that's kind of creepy. I mean, I'd like to know that my things, like Scott, will you take care of my things and make sure people get my books? Yeah, I'm, I want to get all your record. I want your record collection, though. Okay, but don't throw away the books. Like, the books have to go to somewhere cool, or you have to keep them. Okay. Okay, so this is our podcast. So we're agreeing on this, yeah, this right now live on the show? Yeah, this is the podcast, Will. All right, Kelly, you're witnessing this, right? <laughs> she's our witness. She's our, yes. she's our executor now. Yeah, so. 
Congratulations, Kelly. <laughs> I'm also an internet minister, so all of this is full circle for me. So thank okay. you. Okay. All right. Great. Great. <laughs> oh, we can get married too. Oh, we could do that with her too. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I think we've just leveled up our like our internet friendship. So we're ready. <laughs> um, this is okay. So this is a little off topic, but not so much because as I was perusing your website, I I was halted by a project that you were working on that consisted of documenting forgotten or unsupported taxidermy dioramas that are <laughs> no longer being kept up in museums. And I was so intrigued by that idea because think how many think how many times we've gone into museums, like the Field Museum in Chicago, um, any place like that, and that's where you see a lot of like death when you're a little kid. You see the stuffed animals and the yeah. stuffed dodo bird, the extinct animals that don't even have a chance to live anymore. And um, I thought this was like a wild project. Have you done anything with this? I have a bunch of photos uh, and I've gone a bunch of places to do it, but I don't know what to do with them. Um, I guess that's <laughs> like the, the fun thing about art is that you can make a bunch of it, but it doesn't go anywhere unless yeah. you, you try to make that happen for yourself. And it just, I haven't found the right place for it. But um, the best place that I have documented was the Grand Rapids Public Museum um, before it was, before the building was sold. So there's okay. a new one in Grand Rapids. Yep. yep. Um, and the new one is, is sweet and nice and has a lot of the original collection, but they had this huge old building that was built in the 30s. Yep. And it was funded by the WPA. Maybe you've been there. I, I have. That's where I went as a little kid on field trips. Yeah. So yep. I went there to photograph those those animals that had basically not been taken care of since the 90s um, when they moved the museum. And that was crazy and also probably not good for my health but like all of the glass was down so you could kind of like get in there and look around and oh wow um, I had to bring in a flash and everything um but the power the power went out because there was a lightning storm oh, <laughs> oh, no. with a bunch of dead like stuffed a, animals <laughs> yeah and they were I mean they're they're huge right and when you're at some place like the field museum or the you know the, the natural history museum in New York like you know, the kind of like majestic behind the glass, you put your face up and get like your face grease on the glass there. Yeah. And, but going in there and like smelling it and seeing everything as close as you, as you get to be there, like, and being totally unsupervised is, was like a, such a strange and exciting experience. Um, I think that building is gone now. Um, I know they had sold it to a public, one of the I, public schools, but I think I they might have destroyed it. I, I want to say it's a children's museum now. It's not the public museum, but it's a different type of museum. I, I, that's what I want to say it is right now, but I'm not entirely sure either because I haven't paid attention for a bit. But Yeah, I was there. I did that like three years ago. Um, and they also had this these uh, portable collections where, you know, before, I guess before the internet, if you will, or even like the 80s, um, they would bring taxidermy animals and they look like they're kind of in old like dresser drawers and they had the handle on them and you could carry them into a classroom to teach people about animals. Okay. Um, and so they had a ton of those in their collection too that you could like rent and take out. Um, but they hadn't been kept up very well either. So there was like missing eyes and oh. like, you know, like shitty wings and stuff. So. Oh God. Yeah, I like the picture on your website of some guy kind of like with a giant dust mop dusting the tops of the animals in the exhibit. Um because, I mean, they're going to get dirty. You got to, and you don't even think about that as someone walking through the museum that these things have to be taken care of. And yeah, an eye could fall out or something can happen to mm. them. <laughs> right. And if you like the history of both embalming and taxidermy, isn't that different? Like you're, you're filling dead things full of chemicals. Right. Uh, and those chemicals also off gas. And so 
before embalming was like a little bit safer, you had a lot of really toxic chemicals, you know, lead-based things, things that off-gas coming off of these animals as well. And that, you know, that's a problem. And how do you, how do you kind of design a museum care system that allows for those animals to kind of age gracefully, if you will. Right. And not pollute the air. <laughs> right. And it's the yeah. same with human bodies. Like, you know, one of my huge problems with embalming is the impact that it has on the environment, like both spatially with cemeteries, but also with the amount of toxic, toxic stuff that goes into the embalming trade itself. You know, speaking of embalming, when we went to a concert last year, we went to go see Mastodon, and we ran into those funeral guys. Oh, the Calcateras. Yeah, that was trippy, because, I mean, those guys, that that's, uh, Kelly, these are, they're pretty, at least in this area, they're, you know, they Metro own Detroit. the, the Calca, Calcaterra funeral home. Yeah, it's a pretty huge place, and they, they've been there so forever. So there was yeah. two brothers. Well, I, think, I, didn't even, right? I didn't even know who, yeah, we were just, we, we had the meet and greet with the band. Yeah. And then we were done with that. We had to go outside out the gate and hang out. And then, yeah, there was these two guys standing there that looked friendly. So I came over and said, hey, guys, how are you? And they're like, oh, and we, we got to talk. And they're like, yeah, well, we own Calcaterra Funeral Home. So the question So I'm started. like, holy crap, wow. Yeah, what? Yeah. You own funeral homes? What? Yeah, oh, my God. I actually did ask him if corpses ever, like, make noise or rise or something. And he's like, no, no that doesn't a, happen. A, that was, that's a, that's no, a that doesn't happen. And, uh, but he did say that one thing he never, ever, ever got used to was the smell. The smell is gross. I yep. mean, I don't, I have very limited, you know, interaction with, embalming and embalmed bodies but like that's i've definitely considered going to mortuary school numerous times and i yield it usually comes down to the the chemicals and the smell like i can deal with bodies and guts and blood and like grief all of that stuff is fine but when it comes to the chemistry it's just like it's really off-putting i grew up in a funeral home myself my my (laughs) grandfather in his retirement got a job with a good friend of his who owned a funeral home here in Metro Detroit also, who was there for many, many, many years. And I don't know why, but I just started hanging out there with my grandpa because it was cool. Like I thought it was cool. My grandpa drove this big Cadillac and we both get dressed up in our suits and we go there and act, you know, we, we'd work the ceremonies and help, you know, work as ushers and things like that. And I thought it was pretty bad because I was wearing a suit and I thought I was Mr. Important. This is a young kid, you know, uh, yeah. And I ended up just doing, you know, doing maintenance work and stuff like that. And yeah, there was a handful of times where I did. And when I was younger, I was really scared of this stuff. I was, I watched too many damn horror movies <laughs> and there was a handful of jokes that were pulled on me where I get tossed into the embalming room and the door shut behind me and I'd be freaking out and like, thanks grandpa for scarring me the rest of yeah, my no, life. No, that's not good. <laughs> uh, they thought it was hilarious. Oh, of course they did. But, but it was, um. It was, as I mentioned before, I was considering going into mortuary science when I was in high school. And ironically enough, it was uh, Bob Scott, the owner of this funeral home, the, the man who was very nice to me, a total mentor to me. He was the one that talked me out of it, honestly. And it got, does kind of tie in with what we're talking about here, because I remember the conversation I had with him. He said to me, he's like, I, I understand that you're considering going into mortuary science for your profession. I'm like, well, yeah, I go, I, I work here. I think this makes sense. Uh, I, I think I can do it. And he's like, well, let's have a conversation about this. And he explained to me over in the next hour, more or less, that this is a job where you're on call like a doctor all the time, but you don't get paid like a doctor. And more or less what you're doing every day is dealing with grief. This is what you do. So can you 
consider doing this for the rest of your life. And he made me think uh, about that long and hard, and I ultimately didn't end up doing it. But it, it's, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like we kind of, we kind of had parallel lives in that, Kelly, because you, you were considering doing that also. Am I correct? Yeah, and it was just something that, you know, I've been interested in death. I was interested in participating in that culture in general. Um, but I think when it came down to it, I mean, growing up, I was like, I could be a writer. I could also be a garbage man, which were like the two things I wanted to be as a kid. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I, when I, the more I talked to my parents about getting older, they were really like, find a place with good benefits, find a place so that, you know, if you want to travel, if you want to do something with your life that isn't just work, that you have the, the time off basically to make that happen. And so, yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, like death happens all the time and that, that's yeah. going to rule your life, not like when I can go on vacation and like, yeah. you know, sleep in. And those are two things I really like. So, And, that, and that's, that's kind of the weird push-pull of that because there is this, what you're discussing, uh, the order of the good death, that there is this positive thing. It's, it's a part of life, which I agree with 100%. But if you're going to go get on the inside of it like that and, and make that your livelihood – it's something that I'm glad I didn't go into. Yeah, you got to be a certain type of person, I think. Yeah, I, I just couldn't personally do it. And I and I probably wouldn't have been very good at my job years down the road because I would have been burned out. and You would have been crabby. These people would have been coming into the funeral home, like, <laughs> bummed out. And you'd be like, oh, my God, I, I can't deal with this right now. What do you want? <laughs> yeah. I just need more Kleenexes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's true, though. I mean, yeah. I think it, the folks who have done a lot of the work in this, who are the folks in the trade, making those changes happen like on the ground are incredible because they are always living and breathing and making money and also trying to make things better in, you know, funeral homes and the profession of that. It's, yeah. it's wild. I just, you know, for my own self and my existence, like I'm happy to leave work at the end of the day. And like, you know, I will say that I mean, you guys have a podcast about like spooky, weird stuff. Like mm -hmm. you're always doing spooky, weird stuff, but you know how you earn your money and how you make your life happen aren't always, you know, they might hang out a little bit together, but it's not every component of every part of your day. No, uh, I, I don't think any person could immerse themselves professionally, personally in the same thing. Oh, you just, your brain would cook. You wouldn't be able to do that. I think if, you know, too much of anything's bad for you, I guess. Yeah, totally. Uh, you have to have... I mean, and that would make you a boring person, too, I think. I mean, if you didn't have any other dimensions to your life besides just one thing, like this is what I do. Let, let's just say, for example, we did a podcast on, you know, on computers. And, you know, that's what I do during the day. So uh, hobbies, work, it's not very interesting. That would be the lamest podcast. It would be pretty lame. <laughs> well, maybe we can make one cool. I don't know. We uh, could, no, no. <laughs> we have to do a computer. Oh, try to figure out how to now do a weird computer ghostly talk podcast. No, it's just Well, not. no, I mean an episode. I wasn't proposing an idea. Well, I no. mean, my, my gears are moving now. We're not Inspired. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Inspired. Um, so, well, okay. Well, Kelly, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the thank show. thank you so much. Um, we want to tell people to go and explore the Order of the Good Death. Explore your website. I think you got It's Kelly Christian. Is it .com, .net? KellyAChristian.com. Kelly uh, A. Christian. Because I'm a Christian, but my middle name is Ann. So. Okay, because we're going to be linking that up on our website and everything. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in the Order of the Good Death, I highly suggest checking out Caitlin Doty's YouTube channel, Ask a Mortician. 
Um, she's but, but got, yeah, we got the Amber's holding the book. She's right got here, a, an amazing book from here to eternity, traveling the world to find the good death, and and she's the one that started the order, right? That's correct. Yes. She is a true inspiration yes. to us all. She is great, and uh, and her YouTube channel is fantastic. Um, so and if you do have weird questions out there about mortuary science, um, that's the channel to go check out, and of course check out all of Kelly's stuff. So thank you for talking death with us, and and I kind of hope we inspired some people to maybe think a little differently about. Uh, their death and maybe to go make a make a will <laughs> or yeah, do go something. Make a damn will. You know, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. We did ours. Ours was yeah, just done. It's done. It's yeah, it's done. Yeah, our wills. Yeah, yeah. I, for a minute, I forgot. Yeah, we yeah, got our we will done it. tonight. Done. We're all set to yeah, go. We got the books and the records covered. Done and done. Kelly, thank you again so much. You are welcome. This has been great. Thanks so much for thinking of me. Ghostly talk. <laughs> 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 <laughs>